Hey, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hills online Sunday morning service. We gather every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both online and in person. Now, online, you are either watching the live stream on our website or our Facebook page, or you're listening to the audio podcasts that are found on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Now, if you're on those audio podcasts, you just have to search Faith on Hill, and you'll find all of our other podcasts that we offer, the 20-Minute Bible Study, the Starting Points Podcast, which is an introduction to studying the Bible, and our Talk About Anything, which is a long-form conversational podcast that we put out uh, every so often, about once a month, and uh, just talking about anything and everything. Then, of course, Sunday mornings, we are always here. If you're on our Facebook page, we'd love it if you gave us a like and a share. And uh, if you don't follow us on social media, you can follow us at Faith on Hill. Now, today, this Sunday, if you're watching live, I give you permission to turn off the stream uh, if you need to because we are having lunch after church. We're having barbecue pulled pork sandwiches, and then people are bringing side dishes and desserts and stuff. And we just love to see you. So you are welcomed and invited to show up. Uh, so that'll be happening after church today. And uh, if you want to know about things going on at the church, you can follow us, as I said, at, social, at Faith on Hill on social media. We're going to be in the book of the Revelation chapter 3 today as we finish looking at Jesus' messages to the seven churches. Revelation chapter 3 says, To the angel of the church of Sardis, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. If you don't know what that means, that's okay. You can go back and read Revelation chapter 1, and Jesus explains these things. And if you didn't listen to our teaching on Revelation chapter 1, uh, you can go back in the podcast feed and find it there. But he says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains, and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come to you like a thief, and you will not know at what time I come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of the person, of that person from the book of life. But I will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the, church in the, uh, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Now, as we said last week, because Jesus uses this metaphor, the synagogue of Satan, Jesus, the fully human Jesus, was Jewish. John, the writer of this book, Jewish. All of the New Testament writers apart from Luke, Jewish. This is not an anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic statement that Jesus is making. In our day, and we'll talk about this in a few minutes, he would be calling out people who call themselves 
Christians but are not and are liars. Christians who lead persecution against true believers. We'll get more to that in a minute. Since you have kept my commands to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it, and I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them a new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit has to say to the church. To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness. Now, amen is one of those church words that people say, even if they don't know what it means. It means faithful and true. He is the amen. It also uh, can mean so let it be, but the idea is these words are true words and we are in agreement with them. So when we say amen at the end of a prayer, we're saying we believe this is true and we are in agreement with them. When Jesus says he is the amen, he says, I am the faithful witness. What I witness and declare to you is true. The ruler of God's creation. Verse 15, I know your deeds that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, and I have acquired wealth, and I don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear, so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes, so that you can see. To whom I love, and re- uh, to those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So what he's saying is, I'm saying some harsh things to you, but it's because I love you. I'm saying some words that are tough for you to hear, because I care about you. So be earnest and repentant. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. Amen. This is God's word, and I pray that this morning God makes us receptive to his word. You know, I was curious. I wondered as I began my preparation for this morning, why did, when they split the Bible into chapters and verses, why did they decide to divide the seven churches, four churches in chapter two, three churches in chapter three? When the Bible was written, it was not written Revelation chapter one, verse one. It was written as one letter meant to be read in one public sitting. That being said, when you have 66 books, and some of them like Isaiah and Luke are very large books, and you want to find just that one thing, it is so much easier to have chapter 1, chapter 2, verse 1, verse 2. It is so easy. It's so helpful. 
And if you don't know, uh, I talked about this when we went through the book of Daniel, but the, the chapters and verses were put in much later. They are not divinely inspired. They are incredibly helpful. And sometimes they're really good. Sometimes it's like, man, that's weird. It's weird that they put that breakup there and not here. But I was curious, could I tell why it was that they made the choice to go chapter two, the first four churches, chapter three, the last three churches. And I think I have some insight onto this. Before we get into that, I think what is interesting to note in both chapter two and chapter three is how often Jesus says the words, I know. I know your deeds. I know of your suffering. I know what you've endured. He says these words to Ephesus, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. He says these words to all seven churches. I know. I know what's been going on, good and bad. Now, what Jesus saying, I know, means will depend on us. It'll mean different things to different people, to the church in Smyrna, to hear that Jesus knows about their suffering, about their infliction. How encouraging. To the church, like a place like Sardis or Laodicea or Thyatira or Ephesus, and Jesus says, I know, and it's not good stuff challenging. What I know means will be different for each one of us, but it is important to start by saying that God knows, that Jesus is aware, that the Spirit is not absent. Side note, it's not what we're talking about this morning, but all through reading chapter 3, the Trinity was present, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. This is Jesus, God the Son, fully God. And he is speaking to his church. And he is submitting himself and pointing to the Father on his throne. And he is sending the Spirit to speak to the churches. If you have ears, listen. There is one God, but he represents himself distinctly in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Let him who has ears, let her who has ears, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. He says, I know. And what does he know? Well, most commonly, he says, I know your deeds. I was curious. Does this word deeds mean good works? Because I thought we weren't saved by works. I thought we were saved by grace through faith alone. It says this in the Old and New Testament. It was the central focal point of the Protestant Reformation. And and it was this idea that we are not saved by doing good deeds, by keeping a list of rules, by membership in a specific church, by saying a certain prayer, by paying a certain offering. We are saved only through faith in what Jesus did. As he says at the end of the chapter, I sat down victorious on the throne of my father with him. And now I will offer that victory to you. Even though you've done nothing to deserve it, I will offer it to you. Isn't that the Christian gospel? That we don't deserve the love of God, but he has shown it to us anyway? Why is Jesus talking about deeds? Surely this must mean something else. 
Because let's be honest, if you've been around church for a while, you've heard a preacher say this. Well, you know, in the original Greek, it actually means this. Why is it that there are times where a preacher will say, a pastor will say, this is the Bible, and we trust the Bible completely and fully. And then in the same sermon say, oh, but you know what, this word's wrong. Here's the deal with that. We are translating into English from a form of Greek in the New Testament or a form of Hebrew and Aramaic, largely in the Old Testament, which are no longer used. On top of that, you have to translate it into a whole other language. This is something Angie and I talk about, just the differences in language. And as we're, we're working on learning our Spanish, it's kind of been a thing we've been doing this year, working on learning our Spanish. And uh, on the side, very, very casually, I've also been doing a little bit of work in Latin. And it's so interesting how different things are. When you say, how do you feel about that? That word do, D-O, it's totally meaningless outside of the English language. Almost every other language on earth does not have anything like the word do or does. And often the word are, A-R-E, is not used. Instead of saying, are you feeling okay, you know, or um, are you tired, in Spanish you would say something along the lines of like, you know, uh, you know, tu es cansada, you are tired. You wouldn't say, are you tired? It's, it's basically like, you is tired. And, and this idea of translating, sometimes we make a translation and it's like pretty close. And so when a preacher will say the word means something different, what they're saying is it could mean this and it could mean that, and it's pick em. Sometimes a word is translated absolutely 100% correctly into the English of its day. The original King James translation of the Bible. If you talk to people who are uh, just into literature, it is a masterpiece of the English language of its day. It is possibly the most important document in the history of the English language up until recent history. Up until maybe 50, 70 years ago. Most people in the English-speaking world learned to read using the King James Bible. But if you've read it any time in the last 50, 70 years, you'll know nobody speaks like that anymore. My great-grandfather, Alexander, the last Dalhannock born in Europe before they came over. He was just a little boy when they left Vienna and came to America. And he would pray in the King James English. So here's a guy, you know, immigrant family, first-generation American, still in his old age, because he was, he was pretty old by the time I came along, but still in his old age, remembered the German of his family home, spoke modern English, grew up in Seattle, well, spent some time in Omaha, then in Seattle, and then spent the last 20, 30 years of his life retired uh, outside of San Francisco. He spoke very modern English unless he prayed. And then all of a sudden it was, Thou, O Lord, thou hast been kindest to us in thine mercy and benevolence. And it's like, what, what's benevolence? What does that mean? What I'm saying is, is sometimes a word is translated correctly in a form of English that we no longer 
use. So even, even things that were translated like 30 years ago, 40 years ago, now it's like, does that word actually have the same meaning? The words usage and meaning might have shifted enough that somebody needs to explain it. But when I looked in the Greek, and I, I took just enough Greek in, in undergrad and grad school to be dangerous. When I looked in the Greek, my Greek dictionary, the word deeds means exactly what you think it means. When Jesus says, I know your deeds, he's talking about your actions, our works, the things that we do. In the book of James, chapter 2, verse 14, it says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if somebody claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? How many people have said, oh, I believe in God, and yet the entire trajectory of their life says the opposite? Now, somebody might say, well, Adam, what about the thief on the cross? You talk about him a lot. He died moments, hours at most, after he placed his faith in Jesus. He had no time to do anything with his faith. I agree. We are saved by faith alone. We are saved by what Jesus does. That's not what James is saying in James chapter 2. That's not what Jesus is saying here now. What Jesus is doing is affirming the teaching of his half-brother James, and he is saying what we do matters. Not because it saves us, but how does somebody know how does somebody know, am I really a believer? Do I have a saving faith? Now, obviously, I can't look at somebody's heart. Jesus talks about churches here. He even says to the church in Sardis, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Obviously, somebody can fake it, can look good on the outside, but be rotten on the inside. And at the same time, a person who has a saving faith in Jesus will act like it, generally speaking, overall, over the long course of their life. What I'm saying is, is like, I'm not saying that everybody's perfect or that we get it right every time or that we don't have seasons where things aren't messy. What I am saying is that the person who is submitted and surrendered to Jesus over the course of their life, if you were to look at it all together, you would see the work of God. Does that mean that everything has to be figured out? No. The first four churches, Ephesus, had all of the right truth, but they didn't have any love. Thyatira had all of the love and service and good works, but they were messed up with their truth. What I'm saying is, is, in general, the person who is a true believer will live in action. There, there's been a big, big conversation on, on my social media feed anyway about Christians showing up on Sunday morning. And you're watching an online service. And I've been really clear. I think an online service is a valid form of, of Sunday morning especially for, for very specific situations, but I think in general. And there's a reason why we make it available and we do the work to have it available every week. But showing up and watching a video, there's something about 
people find their people. People find their people. Sometimes I'll be driving down MLK in Portland at night, and I'll drive past a place called Guardian Games, and it's a place for tabletop gamers, people who play Warhammer, people who play Dungeons and Dragons, people who are playing like Settlers of Catan is like, oh, that, you know, they're probably doing that too, but it's like entry level, right? The, 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 these are the Cones of Dunshire folk, and, and like one of you is going to get that joke, and that's okay. And I'm not ripping on anybody who's into that. Awesome, if that's your thing. But what I'm saying is this. The reason that there are a bunch of people in a bad neighborhood, in a bad spot in Portland, every time I drive by there at night, is because that's their people. They're into this thing. Tabletop gaming is their, their group. That's who they want to be around. And that's part of what the internet has done, right? that you might have been like the one person that you knew who was into a specific thing. Maybe like all of your friends are into NASCAR and you're not, but you're really into uh, woodworking. And now through the internet, you can be on these forums and you can be talking to people who are into woodworking all over the country. You can talk to people who are into, uh, you know, hiking and, and there's uh, mountain climbing and all of these things and you can get information and trail reports and you can connect with others who have the same interests as we do. We have internet friends. People we've never met on, in the real world but we have you know, connection to common shared interest. You find your people. If you are interested in something, you find the people who share that interest. People who are Jesus' people find the people of God. People who are Jesus' people get to the work of the kingdom of heaven. People who are Jesus' people don't just talk, but they do. There's so many people, Angie and I call it God talking, who talk big about God stuff. And while they're talking, there are people who are quietly, people like the Church of Smyrna, people who are just quietly getting on with the business of the kingdom of heaven and doing the work. Jesus says, I know. And Jesus says, I know your deeds. In the first four churches, remember I said earlier, I was curious why it was that there was this division. And this is near as I can come to. The first four churches, Jesus deals with churches who have held true to the faith, who have held true to the gospel, who have not compromised on the core, you know, closed-handed, non-negotiables of our faith. But they had massive things that needed addressing. Ephesus needed love. Thyatira, Pergamum needed holiness. Smyrna needed encouragement. This is one of the two big words that I think every Christian should know. Sanctification. That is the process in which we are made holy unto the Lord, in which we are made more like Jesus, in which we are filled with the love of God and the truth of God together. You see this in life, in people's lives, in church history, in biography, and in people we know in our own world. You see that there are people who know God, who believe in God, who profess faith in Jesus, and then something clicks. And it's like their faith goes to another level. They were believers, but it was always this weird back and forth, and then something clicks. 
Some groups call it being filled with the Holy Spirit. Some groups call it being sanctified. Some groups call it this or that. Whatever it is, we see it happening. And so Jesus, to those four churches, is speaking to them not of issues of salvation. He's speaking to them of issues of sanctification, of the process of being more like Jesus. And that's where he says, hear what the Spirit has to say. Christians, hear what the Spirit has to say. I, I recently was at a meeting where there were Christians who I believe were so sincere and I believe were trying to stand for the truth. But love for others felt very distant. And I have been in conversations with people who have more love in their little finger than maybe I have in my whole body. But they don't know how to direct that love in healthy and appropriate ways. And they're so caring and they're so concerned for others. And yet, they're just lost. That's sanctification. This week, and what we have read, Jesus is interested in justification. He is interested in salvation. He says to the church in Sardis, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Some of you haven't soiled your clothes, but the rest of you are in trouble. Some of you, I will not blot out your names from the book of life, but that kind of implies that others will be blotted out. Here is this one of these age-old questions in the Christian faith. Can a person lose their salvation? It's always phrased that way. Can a person lose their salvation? Here is my answer. What does Jesus say to the church in Philadelphia? What does he say? He says, I am the one who opens and no one can shut and whatever I shut, no one can open. I have no fear that I will lose my salvation, that Jesus won't have the strength to carry me, that Jesus won't make room for me, that Jesus can't hold you and me fast to him. I do not worry about that. So when somebody says, can I lose my salvation? I say, no. But we would be ignoring the scripture if we ignore verses like Revelation chapter uh, 5, where Jesus says, I will never blot out of the name of that person who, the one who hasn't soiled their clothes, the one who has, uh, hasn't walked away into darkness, that person will never be blotted out of the book of life. But there's implication in those words. You may not be comfortable with that. I may not be comfortable with that. There are whole traditions within Christianity that are incredibly uncomfortable with that. Yet that's what it says. Can I lose my salvation? Can you lose your salvation? You can't lose it. But as I read the scripture, and I'm not interested in having arguments with theology bros or to, you know, break fellowship or break good relationship with people who have a different opinion than I do. But as I read and understand the scripture, a person may not make the finish line in victory. A person may start out in faith. Do you remember Jesus and his teaching of the sower in the field? He says somebody was out sowing in the field, sowing seed, and some seed fell on thin soil. And the plants came up and they received the good news with joy, but it had no root. And when the sun came out, it, it died. There was no root system to sustain life. There are people who have 
come and proclaimed faith and said, hey, I'm part of the church. And then a while later, they've just totally gone off into some debauchery or insanity or nonsense or just an outright rejection. There were those who once professed Christ who now are actively trying to lead people away from Christ. There's a guy I, I still follow on social media just to kind of keep up with him. I used to know him way back in the day. And he now goes around, and one of his big things is to try to tell people, you don't have to believe in that anymore because that's not real. Now, he's incredibly uninformed. I mean, it's, it's one thing to say, like, I don't believe in Jesus. That's fine. But it's another thing to just, like, be basically, like, repeating the same things that you read on the Internet that have been, like, disproven over and over and over again. <sighs> anyway, my point is this. For those of us who say, can I lose my salvation? No. But is it possible to walk away? I think yes. Jesus says, I know. I know your deeds. And somebody might come along and say, well, what about that person? Jesus knows. What about that person? It's not my business. Jesus knows. Well, what about a person who is this, but then seems to come back? Were they unsaved during that? I don't know. You're talking about things that are mysterious, things that we don't have insight into. I'm just trying to tell you this is what the scripture says as best as I understand it. And remember, one of our big things about Revelation is are we consistent in our approach to scripture? One of the things that I try to be consistent about in how I approach the Bible is when the Bible is speaking and clear, then I try to speak clearly what it says and I try to listen clearly to what it says. When the Bible is silent, I need to be silent. So there are things in which I don't know. But Jesus says, I know your deeds. And to the church in Sardis, he says, I found your deeds incomplete. You showed up to church. You said the right things. You took communion. But your heart is still soiled. It's still filthy. It still has to be cleansed. There are people who show up to church, do the religious cycles and and orders and ordinances. They pray, they give, and yet inside their heart has not been forgiven. They have not been changed by Jesus. There are those who walked in faith and then walked down a different path. And to them, I would say, like, I am not God. I can't see your heart, and I don't know your ultimate end but I would not feel comfortable or assured in my salvation if I had once professed faith and now declare that the teachings of the word of God are false, either by direct words or by how I live. Somebody who is living in open, unrepentant rebellion friend, that's between you and God, but I don't want you to have false assurance that because you prayed a prayer at a camp once or because you were confirmed in a church or because you were once a church member or because you did this or that, that you somehow have assurance of faith when Jesus gives this warning. Be warned. But then he says to the one who is victorious, when are you victorious? Well, first of all, we're victorious at the end. Stand firm till the end. He says, excuse me, verse five to the church in Sardis, to the one who is victorious, you will be dressed in white and I will never blot your name out of the book 
of life and I will acknowledge your name. So he says, hey, victory comes at the end. Victory is not now. It's, all, it's beginning. It's happening. But when we talk about victory, as much as I believe there's victory in this life, victory comes at the end. Victory comes when Jesus establishes his kingdom. In verse 12, to the church in Philadelphia, he says, the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, remember we're saying being consistent. I take the Bible literally, except where it's obviously figurative. I don't believe that he is saying, I'm going to make you into a physical pillar. But he is saying that the, the, the temple of God will be his people. The temple of God will be his people. Now, there's debate. Was this book written before or after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem? I think either way, it's powerful. Either way, what it's saying is this. The temple may be destroyed, but the true temple is the people of God. To the religious people, you may say, hey, your, your buildings may come down, your infrastructure may come down, your, your institutions may crumble, but it's the people of God that make up the temple. Finally, to the church in Laodicea, in verse 21, Jesus says, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. It comes at the end. It comes through Christ alone. How do we have victory in this life? It is because it says, like it says in uh, verse 8, he says to the church in Laod uh, into Philadelphia, he says, you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. You have had a living, active faith. You have believed in your heart, professed in your mouth, with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you have lived in that truth. Victory comes at the end. It comes through Jesus alone, and it is worth the cost. Remember, Smyrna, poor, beaten down. Here in, in Philadelphia, they are being attacked, slandered, persecuted. He says it's worth it. There, there is a prize coming that is worth the pain that you go through. Every mother I've ever talked to, what was it like when you held that child after going through the ordeal of pregnancy? Nine months of discomfort. Nine months of having your body taken over and, and everything just going crazy emotionally and hormonally and physically. And then the actual pain and agony of giving birth. And everyone has said, oh, when I, when I held the baby. I've seen it. It's amazing. The love I'll never forget Angie talking to our boys when she first held them after giving birth. It's worth the cost. And then finally, he says, whoever has ears. How do we have ears? Romans 8 tells us that the Holy Spirit of God will make a way. You can go read that for yourself. But the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf. There's a theological term called provenient grace that you can ask me about later, exactly how that all works. But this idea that God, the Holy Spirit, makes a way for people to have ears. Then we need to humble ourselves. First Peter chapter 5, verse 6, humble yourself before the Lord. 
It is a humiliating, humbling act to say, I was wrong. To say, I've been in rebellion against God. And now I'm going to change and I am going to follow him. And I'm going to reject this world and I'm going to go a different way. That is a humbling experience. We need to have ears to hear. Thankfully, God the Holy Spirit provides those ears. When we make the choice, choose this day, it says in Acts chapter 2, choose this day who you will serve. We make the choice to humble ourselves before God. And finally, those who have ears, we take what we have been given. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. The Spirit is saying, take the promise and the power of salvation. Take the promise and the power of sanctification. Take what's been given freely at a great cost. Jesus has made the way of salvation. And you know what? Before he deals with a world that is in rebellion to God, before he deals with a world that is in just total madness, a world that is full of the insanity of sin, the insanity of evil, the insanity of violence and greed, immorality, war, genocide, racism, on and on and on. Before he deals with that, he first deals with his own people and he calls us to something better. Friend, if you do not know if you have a saving faith, if you say, I, 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 I believe there's a God and, and I, I know that I have not done what I should have done, I know that I haven't walked in his ways. Then he offers the invitation, just as he says to the church in Philadelphia, he says, what I open, no one can shut, and I have placed an open door before you. That open door of salvation is available to any who would believe. Those of us who have walked through that door of salvation, those of us who are living in the kingdom of heaven, He's inviting us to the fullness of it. He's inviting us to remove the filthy clothes stained with sin and replacing them with his clothes of righteousness. He's inviting us to reject this world of madness and its ways and to walk in the kingdom's ways, to walk in Jesus' ways and his truth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit has to say. What's the Spirit saying to you? I don't know. I'm not you. I know that the Spirit told me to follow Jesus. And the Spirit calls to us and calls to me and says, live in the victory of Christ. The Spirit will make a way for us. You say, I don't know if I have the strength to do it. Ask God to give you the strength. You say, I don't know what to do. Start by humbling yourself and just saying, I'm wrong and God is right. Well, what's the next step? Take what you've been given. Sometimes I think it's like we have to like think a thousand steps ahead. Here's the first step. What's the first step that God is calling you to do? Take what you've been given and act on it so that when the day comes, when Jesus returns, he finds us walking in his ways about his father's business, doing what he has called us to do. And we will not be ashamed, not because of our own goodness, not because of our own good deeds, but because of the work that Jesus has done, the power that Jesus has displayed, and the grace and the mercy that we live in.
In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I hope and pray and trust that these words are challenging to us as as much as they are encouraging to us. God bless you. We'll see you next week. The precious are, Jesus Christ.